Hello and welcome to Data Stories with Isabel Becker. This is a podcast about why data is the latest innovation in storytelling and why you should know about it. Each episode, I'll be talking to a new guest about what data stories are, the place of data stories in culture and society today, and why they have the potential to change the world around us. Rahul Baragav, Assistant Professor at Northeastern University's College of Arts, Media and Design in Boston, Massachusetts, is an educator, researcher, designer and facilitator who builds collaborative projects to interrogate our datafied society with a focus on rethinking participation and power in data processes. His academic work on data literacy, technology and civic media has been published in journals such as the International Journal of Communication, the Journal of Community Informatics, and being presented at conferences. His museum installations have appeared at Boston Museum of Science, iBeam in New York City, and the Tech Interactive in San Jose. So welcome Rahul to the Data Stories with Isabel Becker podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here all the way from across the pond. Um, we're working through different time zones. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. I love chatting about these ideas. (laughs) So let's start with you. You currently lead the Data Culture Group at the Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts in the States, which builds collaborative projects to interrogate our datafied society with a focus on rethinking participation and power in data processes. Can you tell us a bit about what that means? Yeah, sure. That's a jumble of academic sounding words. (laughs) So let me break it down. We've seen data, which traditionally, if you think about the history, came out of sciences, economics, epidemiology, with a set of practices and ways of doing things and ways of showing data. And, you know, you can think about sort of analytics and algorithms and mathematical analyses and spreadsheets and producing data about something else, analyzing it and then reporting back. That's sort of a summary. That's all moved as data has become more popular and used everywhere for a variety of reasons that we can get into. Now we have a whole different set of settings where data is being used. These are things like civics, government meetings, nonprofits, community groups, libraries, museums, schools. That's a very different list than the first list I shared. Yet, All of those norms and practices I just mentioned have sort of come with the way we use data into this new setting. So my research and this research group is really about rethinking that. Like, why is that? What are the impacts of that? And how do we chart a new course? The argument is that that is some of the reason we have a lot of friction, negative impact, and honestly, disempowering practices in these new settings. So that's kind of what it means in practice beyond the jumble of academic sounding words. Okay. Yeah. And can you give us an example of something that you're focusing on currently or that you're really excited about at the moment? Sure. Yeah. Well, what I'll do is uh, to start with, I can pick apart. I usually talk about the methods for learning to work with data and sharing data and then the media that we actually produce and share. So I'll start with the second. And media, in this case, I mean the things that we present with. So that would be a screen, 
a piece of paper, a poster, that media. And if you think about it, the existing practices of data mostly produce charts and graphs. And we have a toolbox for those. And like we have, you know, the standard ones that most people are familiar with, bar charts, pie charts. Then there's maybe like the the more recently novel ones that attract more visual engagement. So you see these a lot in infographics, stream graphs, radar charts, or novel encodings of data into visual form. But they're still all in this box of 2D representations. And that's kind of where we are for a lot of reasons. And that's the, you can trace back the history of where that came from. Now, I contrast that with a different set of media that we can work with. And those are things that I've been working on, like data sculptures. So 3D representations of data. And I don't just mean a 3D bar chart, even though that's interesting on its own. I mean, um, I can give you examples, but potentially also data murals. So if you want to stay wedded to the 2D representation, paint it on a giant wall in public space, and it operates totally differently. Or things like data theater, learning from the practices of participatory theater to bring people together around data in a way that isn't just saying, here's a bar chart we can all look at, but here's something we can build together. So a lot of what I'm doing now is exploring this toolbox that is outside of the 2D media and saying, hey, again, in these new settings, what if we use a broader toolbox to engage people and bring them together around data? Yeah, and that's why I think your research is so interesting because it really is kind of just a step ahead of what is kind of standard in the industry at the moment and with that focus on engagement and how do we actually get people and I like that you use the phrase meet them where they are and how do we get people and how when we meet them where they are and how do we get them to engage with data in different ways and I when I hear you talk that I kind of can foresee that in five years time some company is going to be like we've had this idea that no one's ever thought about where we're going to create data sculptures <laughs> and you're going to be like um but that's what academia is for I guess but it's sometimes it's, yeah <laughs> But it's really it's something that I've observed in my own experience of being in data. And I think one of the most kind of informative experiences that speaks to what you just said there is um, when I speak to my friends and family about working in data and that it's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. That feels so alien to me. And there's the gap <laughs> in the engagement is that like, I, I can't access that. I don't know what you're talking about, but so for me, it feels so like it feels personal hearing about your your research, mm. because I can imagine in my own lived experience, as well as like within the world, what the impact could be of having something like a data sculpture or a data mural and showing that in front of people and then being like, oh, and there's kind of a spark of maybe I can access that now. So kind of intellectually. Yeah. I think that's really interesting, but I'm also... Yeah, I was just going to jump in there. That's part of the point, is that, that that initial bucket that I laid out of the sort of processes and mechanics and media for working with data is fairly constrained to a certain set of people, a set of people that have been privileged enough to work with math, work with computation and digital literacies. And if we want to now in this new setting... We want to engage a larger set of people. So we can't assume that those same literacies are there. So if we want to work with more people, we need to do some things that are more creative. And I can get concrete with a, with a, 
with actually a very commercial example. Um, I think one of the few examples that is so commercial, because um, a lot of my work is with activists and artists and nonprofits. But there was this advertisement uh, in the US that I saw years ago on TV, right? So it's like an actual television ad. And it was for this company uh, called Prudential, which does retirement planning. So like something most young people don't want to think about. And they worked with a Harvard professor uh, who does a lot on behavior change. And they came up with this advertisement that opens with a question. How much money is in the U.S. you have to save privately for retirement? How much money do you need to retire? And then people guess a number. And they give them a ribbon that is longer if they set a higher number. And then it's in a big grass field in a park. And you, you tape your ribbon to the center of a circle painted on the grass. And then you start walking with your ribbon in hand as it unfurls. And then at some point, your ribbon ends based on how much money you guessed. And you look down and you see concentric rings on the ground, like a radar chart, of the time, the age where you ran out. So maybe you walked with your you know, million dollars or whatever. You walked all the way to 83. And you look down and you say to yourself, oh no, I want to live longer than that and have money <laughs> to live longer. So this, this physical experience of representing the data as you walk, as it unfurls, and then you feel a jerk when you run, you literally feel the data running out when you hit your, the edge. And you look down, you have this moment, this experience of the data that's very different than seeing it on a chart. And then, of course, you know, it's an advertisement. So they give you a prudential ribbon and you walk all the way to 110 or 100 if you're a man or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, the ad closes. But yeah. the idea there, and it's a very commercial example, but that idea that they made the data about something pe most people don't want to think about. You know, if you're young, you know, you, you think you have years and decades, you get a little bit older with more gray hairs like my beard, then you start to think, I need to think about this. But they made it very experiential. And I think that's an example to sort of evoke this kind of question you're pointing at. How do you get people to think about data in a different way? And that's kind of what we mean about a different toolbox. That's kind of what I'm referring to. Yeah, and it's really about the foundations of our education really and, and and how we're taught to absorb information is that not the kind of underlying layer to all of this is that there's all different types of ways to teach people information and there's and it's not like this is you know robotics that we're planting into our brains it's just experiential and that's I guess I don't know I, I guess you know about the kind of history of western teaching practices and perhaps you know made more to be you know in the classroom and 2d and stuff and taken away from those experiential learning practices but that's perhaps something that you know has always existed existed in other cultures and other countries and other times does that speak to your research yeah that really resonates for me a lot of the approaches that i build are based on alternative learning theories and that's what i studied in my my graduate program was learning and actually, it was robotics and education. <laughs> but, uh, but that's where I was really introduced and steeped in these theories of learning, and that there are multiple modalities, and people have different ways of learning. And we can dig into details if we want. But the, the sort of main summary is that right now, those data practices and those data representation practices that we've been talking about, charts, graphs, and things like that, are targeted at one way of conceiving of information and communicating it we've sort of ignored the rest of the ways. And, you know, some people have like three other ways of learning. Some people have 20, There's, you know, we can get into details about that. But 
the fact is that we've really just narrowed in on this one. So we've kind of put handcuffs on ourselves and said, oh, if, if you're not making this set of 20 charts and graphs, it doesn't count. Um, and that's really interesting because it has lots of power embedded in it, right? Just like we talked about who can access that way of communicating and analyzing working with data. There's a power question there about who data is for and who gets to use it that I think I try to unpack in my work in these new settings to say, hey, if you're doing a community meeting in a government setting that where you're showing some data, you need to really think about, can the audience understand the way I'm sharing this information? And is that at the right level? And that's what I mean when I say power. It's you know who has access to work with data and to be invited authentically into some kind of data-centered conversation or data-informed conversation. Yeah. And that relationship between data and power, why is that so strong? Yeah. Well, I mean, we can get really depressing and <laughs> dig into we the can. history of data <laughs> and what it's been used for. But a summary is that I think is a reasonable retelling of the history of data is it's been a tool for those in power to enact power, their power or control over other populations of people. And you can literally go back 4,000 years to this clay tablet that is like wow. the, one of the oldest tables that we have in the world. And you can look at it and what is this tablet recording? And it's like literally scratched in, you know, cuneiform or cuneiform. It's in from Babylonia, right? The Ur Kingdom is the one I'm specifically referring to. It's keeping track of who, when you showed up to work and when you didn't show up to work and the reason, and like the, some of the reasons are like, I'm embalming my mother, right? It's like, this is 4,000 years ago. Wow. It's the man keeping track of who's coming to work or not. And then like being punitive if you didn't make it to work because you were embalming your mother or whatever you needed to do. <laughs> so like, that's sort of a, a, a lightweight example, but like that is the history. And you can trace that throughout, but the history of, of data is as a tool of power. And I tend to talk about it as something that is that defines an other. So the way I usually talk about this is to say that data is most often used through a window and not through a mirror. So what do I mean by that? It means data is often like the people collecting data are observing some other phenomenon outside the window and then noting it and thereby producing their data from my art point of view, extractively from whoever's outside the window, making some analysis and then making some decisions about the community of people outside said window. So that's what I mean by window. Now, if you flip it, what's a mirror for? A mirror is to look at yourself. And it argues that the people analyzing and working with data should be the community itself who's represented by the data. And you can use mirrors to sort of check out your own image. You can even use mirrors to make predictions, looking around corners. You can, you can do the same things. But it's a very different mindset that speaks to this question of power. So how do you address power in the data work you're doing? Try to think about whether you can change the window into a mirror. I like that. And that's kind of a nicely simplified example or metaphor, I guess, for what that means with power. That's interesting. When you're talking about the history of, of data, as a tool of power, how does that differ from the history of like language and communications? Yeah, it's a good question. I think 
you know, you can, we tend to talk a lot right now, it's very popular to talk about data literacy. And when you, uh, which connects to like the history of language, the idea of literacy, most people, when you mention it, think of reading and writing, and they think of it literacy as a sort of a net good in society, that it's sort of a core skill that you need to be a functioning member of society. There's an alternative historical perspective from the likes of Plato and Levi Strauss and others that say literally literacy has been used as a tool for controlling the masses. And a response to that is to say we need more critical writers rather than just readers. And someone that I draw a lot from is inspiration is uh, this philosopher and educator from Brazil, Paulo Freire. And what Freire did was just very concretely, one thing he did was to say, hey, when you're learning to read, in, you know, and he was doing his work in Brazil at the time, we should be introducing people to reading things about their community and about things that matter. So they're building what he called a critical consciousness through their literacy, right? Like you're not just reading storybooks. That's great. That's fun. But you're reading about what's happening in the world around you. So you're aware and unlocked and ready to be a critical thinker and member of society. So Freire's literacy is in support of empowerment and justice. You can make a similar analog to data literacy now from that history of language learning. Building a critical literacy in data suggests that when you're introducing data to someone learning, you shouldn't use like, you know, most popular cars or favorite songs. Like we use that, that's fun. But perhaps you should also use things like weather pattern changes to look at climate change. Or if you're doing cars, maybe you should look at average miles per gallon to look at efficiencies over time and the impact of that or emissions. You know, you should use data that has some impact on the world so that people can be critically aware of the situation around them and of the data production itself. What's included? What's left out? What couldn't be quantified? How does that connect to your personal experience of whatever the data phenomenon is? So I do think it connects to the history of language. And if I can pull on that thread a little bit more, there's a funny, when we look at the history of the term data, you can sort of think about its, its historical uses have changed over time. But I actually like to think about when I'm introducing data, I like to think about most people think of quantification, right? So like numbers when they think of data, which we can come back to. But when you're thinking about that, it, it involves counting. And like, you know, my kids are good at counting. So counting's pretty easy. So data is not that hard. In Spanish, the term for that, to count, is contar. And it's easier to explain in Spanish because, as I discussed one time um, at a workshop with a bunch of Latin Americans I was running, the contar has two meanings. It means to count, but it also means to tell. So I like using that word because it, it conveys that from the very moment of production, data is telling a story. It's not some objective truth that is sort of separated from society. It's contextual. And I think talking about that term contar is really valuable to say it's it has this dual meaning to count and to tell in in english you can see it in the word accounting like you can accounting is numbering something but also an account is like a, a the narrative of something it works a little bit better in spanish but you can see the sort of double meaning and i think that is again like connected to this language thread that you're pulling on a little bit how we talk about data and how we learn to work with data and talk about it are very critical how we conceive of it yeah, and we can pivot too. <laughs> I launched into a, a, a bit of a, 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 a no, no, rant there. No, 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 it was all good. My mind just went blank. But yeah, you talked about data theater. 
as a way to engage people with data. I'm really interested in that. I haven't come across that, anything else that I've seen or, or read. And it's really, it's really interesting because it's taking something that the kind of outside, the two things seem so different. And why would an audience of theatre happening a, a way, why would they be able to engage with data? But I guess that's using those kind of, mainstream preconceptions of data as those 2D representations on the screen and everything. So why did you choose theater as a medium through which to get different types of audiences to engage with data as opposed to other things that could have been on the table? Yeah. So as we think about sort of shifting the toolbox to be more appropriate for data storytelling in what I call these pro-social contexts, not sort of the science context, but sort of the, the civic or government or other contexts. One of the valuable takeaways is to think about one of the central principles of my friend, uh, my friends Catherine and Lauren's book, Data Feminism, which is to elevate emotion and embodiment. And they talk about that when it relates to like multiple ways of knowing things and, and embracing different ways of thinking. So some of my colleagues at Northeastern now are working on, my colleague Laura Perovich is working on data dance, and she helped sort of start to explore embodiment. From there, I've launched into data theater. And the reason I did so is because theater has a long tradition of participatory approaches that center rethinking power and who gets to make decisions. The primary one is, I'll return to Brazil, from uh, this philosopher and theater practitioner, Augusto Bauer. And if you've ever been in a theater class or seen an improv thing where, you know, maybe they're, they're pretending to be a machine or they're sort of turning and making masks, their faces, all of these activities, many of them come from Ball's work. And the piece of his work that I want to pull out is a practice of theater where they break down the wall between the audience and the performers to rethink civic issues. So he would do things in public settings where they would like reenact some trouble, some troubling phenomenon, pause the theatrical performance, invite in an audience member to take the place of a cast member and then replay it, right? So they're literally resetting the dialogue. And of course, his approaches connect very directly to Freire's approaches about power. But that's a long way of saying that there's a history there around empowerment and engagement that we can learn from to develop a broader toolbox for telling data stories. So when we started playing with the idea of what does data theater look like, we immediately started to see that the participants in our initial prototype workshops were embodying the subjects of the data in a way that created more connection and empathy. So when we were looking at food security data, where people had to travel too far to get food so they couldn't get appropriate food, and they were struggling with uh, what we call food security, having enough of the right type of food to eat every day. We would see them pretending to wait at a bus stop and doubled over, feeling the pain of hunger. That's what they would act out. And that's a very different way to connect to the data than saying 40% of people had to uh, take wait more than an hour to get to the grocery store that had the cheapest prices in town. Very different way to represent that. We also saw, as we started to use some of these participatory theater techniques, we saw more critical questioning of the data. So people saying, oh, usually when you see data and numbers in a charts, it sort of conveys truth. It has what we call a rhetorical power. 
if you pull out a number or a chart, people tend to think, oh, okay, that seems like it's true. And, you know, this is in a time when truth is being debated <laughs> and reality is being debated with misinformation and everything. It's interesting to note that even those who are making things up are using charts and graphs to convey their made up truth. So the rhetorical power is still there. It's just being used by a broader set of people to give them truth and mistruth. But anyway, pulling it back, we saw people questioning that truth and saying, huh, who's left out of this data? And that type of questioning is really important in all settings to say, oh, how is this data collected? Who was collecting it? Who was left out? What phenomenon is it missing? What else? What other context can I bring to this data set to make it something that's a better picture of the world or more useful and accurate picture of the world? And I think that some of the theatrical practices, we're starting to see clues that it gets people there sooner. So that's a summary of what we're starting to find with the, the early explorations we're doing on data and theater. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Uh, what, are the, what are the findings that you're seeing? But as you're saying this is at early stages, so that's what you can kind of hint at so far. Yeah, and we're looking forward to exploring this more. And now that we're sort of in the U.S., people are sort of getting back to some regular practices out past the sort of the worst of the COVID pandemic. Now we're starting to be able to partner again. And, you know, I'm looking to partner with theater troops that do this type of work, who we've learned a ton from and have already collaborated with. And to reboot that collaboration, to try to pull on these threads a little bit more, because some of this stuff really is in the practice of it. You know, you can't sit in a room and theorize about how it might go. You got to go do it with people and see what it's like. And I look forward to getting back to some of that, which has been paused for a little bit. Yeah. And I guess, does all of that kind of come from the the concept that as humans, we can gain more understanding from something when we have that capacity to empathize and use emotion in our thought processes rather than absorbing information from a screen yeah you said it there are multiple ways of learning and knowing things and you know as that example from the prudential ad described that that physical way of knowing is one way we want to engage more there's the emotional experience of viewing a performance as another way of knowing and taking away. Everyone who's seen an impactful performance of music or drama understands that there's a different way of knowing something when you experience that production. And that really matters because these are multiple ways of getting to people in a way that a chart doesn't. So I'm not saying that a chart is wrong. I'm saying that our toolbox is too small. And we need some way to say, hey, here's our list of ways for communicating with data. Here's the audience and the goals that I have right now. We need better ways to connect those two, right? To draw a line from your technique you're using to tell your data story to the audience in a way that makes sense. So, you know, when you're at a public festival trying to talk about who knows what, recycling rates in your town, you show up with a printed out bar chart, no one's going to stop at your table. (laughs) They're all at the festival. But what if you made... Even just to be silly, what if you made a giant bar chart made of trash, you know, that showed (laughs) recycling rates with recycling things and like trash rates with stinky trash? People are going to stop. They're going to say, huh, what's up with this big giant pile of trash? That's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, matching those things so they make sense, you know, with a broad and you need a broader toolbox for that. Totally. And can I just stop to reflect that having this conversation with you is so amazing for me because 
your research and your ideas is just totally speaking to the kind of thoughts and feelings that I've been having kind of internally and to see you kind of put that into academia which I think will kind of I believe that what you're doing is going to roll out into like a more mainstream kind of application but yeah it's I think there's there's so much exciting but also at the same time you know if not used appropriately potentially dangerous like you're saying with the misinformation kind of reserves of potential within data because if people know that there are lots of different ways to get a data story or to get a message from some data across to audiences and it's not just through charts and graphs there if you it's just coming back to the if you just look at the the way that humans learn the way that that media and stories engage people there's so many different techniques and tools that you can use to communicate a data story and I think mm. that's so exciting because there's so much potential there for for communicating mm -hmm. data stories but I think it, there's also I think it the awareness needs to be there because it can also be used in a malign way so if the kind of the wrong people have that knowledge they can start doing the the data sculptures and the data theater and communicating that to people and it's, it's all just comes back to power because it's really about influencing people isn't it and I think just having this awareness that there are so many different types of ways that you can communicate a data story for example using something like data theater is really significant because these mediums are kind of potential avenues for really influencing people. Yeah. And I think the, it's just another way to be communicating. Right. And the reason, one of the reasons that data has become so popular right now is because it carries that sense of truth and power in it. Right. It's we've long had information as a way we convey, but in the last 20 years, you've seen this growth of things like infographics, you know, which center quantitative data very often. I think qualitative data is overlooked. I teach in journalism, and I think you know journalists are wranglers of qualitative data. You know, they collect quotes, photos, they fact check them, they assess them, they stitch them together into a narrative. They're already doing data storytelling. It's just with qualitative data, and it's different with quantitative data. But I think that's often ignored. But I also want to speak to your. I appreciate the sort of the, the validation uh, that you feel to be talking about this together. I, I enjoy that as well. And I also think like this stuff is already happening. The artists and the activists are on top of this. There's a, I need to schedule a trip down to New York, which is just, you know, a couple hours south of where I am outside of Boston, because there's a pop-up mini golf course. And I like, I love mini golf or putt-putt. Uh, depending on how you call it. I love it. I've loved it since I was a kid. We've like, I've made courses with people. It's a whole thing for me. But okay. in New York, there's a pop-up mini golf course right now about climate change. And each hole is designed with some data about climate change. Right? So like people are already doing this. If you go, you know, I went to a recent art show and I saw a set of quilts and mosaics that were basically tracking personal data, things like sleep patterns, and then they were using their craft, the artists, to represent that back. A pillow mosaic made out of tile that showed like sleep patterns. Like this is data has become a more public, popular media form and rhetorical form. It's being engaged by 
these artists, activists, and other groups already beyond the corporate environment. Even in protests, you know, there was during the the U.S. wave of defund the police protests two years ago. There was an example of a group in Chicago that made this giant cardboard bar chart to show police funding versus other funding on the street next to a megaphone. So like these things are happening. And I think that this is wonderful. It's not just me at all. It's a phenomenon that's sort of pushing at those edges. And that's very exciting to me to sort of see people saying, no, well, we can use this. We can use these approaches in service of justice and in service of, of building popular awareness. And so a lot of my approach and my, my tenets, my central principles, I talk about a concept of popular data, this idea that we need a new set of methods and media for work, learning and working with data based on the fact that it's being used in a wider context now. And I think it's happening. Yeah, I mean, and that's what your work is about, isn't it? Observing what's, what, how that's happening in the world today. Amazing. We might have not touched on this yet, but I've come across something that, that you mentioned, your colleagues, Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein, something called data feminism. Can you just give us an overview of what that means? Yeah. So I've learned a ton from their work and they have a set of central principles that draw on a history of feminist thinking to rethink a bunch of the normal ways we work with data at this point. So a lot of their tenants are about rethinking and challenging power. We talked about elevating emotion and embodiment, rethinking hierarchies, embracing pluralism, considering context, rethinking how we show labor in data production. They have a set of central principles conveyed in their book that definitely connect to and inform my work. And we've worked together on a number of projects. So I love their approach. I highly recommend folks dig into it for a bunch of concrete examples that force you to reckon with how you're working with data. And I think that, that bringing that feminist perspective, which is long rooted in sort of practices and a couple of different waves of feminist thinking, has a ton to offer for people that are working with data in various contexts and really does force us to rethink some of the practices that are embedded in how we work with data, right? That like the way we extract data from a community and then who gets to tell the stories with it? Who gets to represent it? How do we acknowledge where it came from and who owns it? These are all really core questions that usually in data projects go unasked, even though like there's implicit decisions being made. And I think their work is really just super valuable for helping push on that for in a very practical way that is being applied across industries, um, which is very exciting to see. And of course, yeah. it's informed my own practice and work as well. And I'm going to ask you a bit of a difficult question because I don't really think there is an easy answer to this, but <laughs> I'm going to attempt it anyway. So the principles of, of data feminism, things like consider context and make the labor of data collection visible. I've seen in your research that you've applied principles of data feminism to things like creating machine learning models to create a recommendation service for um, activists. And in your findings, you've concluded that these principles of data feminism are possible 
to embed in data projects and make that balance of power more even across the the kind of subjects and the the people collecting the data and analyzing it and using it if time and resources are dedicated to the things that will enable these principles of data feminism so for example iterative data collection by taking samples of data from many different points to kind of gather different perspectives different points in time or uh yeah i'm just gonna leave that example there um so my question is if the constraint is on time and resources how do we balance that with the pressures in the corporate world of rapidly releasing products to the market where those constraints do just come from time how can yeah. do you think do you have hope that companies can embed that time and resource in so i think i mean you're speaking to collective work that that comes out of Catherine's data plus feminism lab over at mit which i'm a collaborator on and we've done some work to help activists that are tracking feminicides, so gender-related killings across the Americas, and built machine learning models to help them find news stories about that so that it can increase their ability to track these stories and build database of them in support of actions against it. And I've been happy to really enjoyed helping and collaborating on that. The underlying question is how we rethink what have become normal processes for working with machine learning. And what I tend to call machine teaching, because we're we're teaching machines to do things. So who gets to teach them, right? It's that same question of power. And in corporate environments, I tend to argue that if you're not thinking about who's teaching, then you're basically increasing risk. And you can see it in a lot of the algorithmic auditing that's happening now, whether by, in the US, like state or federal agencies or academic departments. So an example is basically discriminatory pricing, right? So say you build a dynamic pricing model in your business, you <coughs> ingest a bunch of data about, you know, from zip codes in the US or postal codes to look at income levels and outcomes for some process. And then you come up with a pricing model that's trained on that data. Um, so if no one from those communities is involved in the development of that, then you have no way to assess the risk profile that you're putting yourself in front of when you start using that model on your product. And then later on, as happened multiple times in the US, you'll get fined because you basically bake racism into your algorithm because you use zip code. In the US, our communities are incredibly segregated still, which has a long history of why. But like zip code is a, in many places, is a proxy for race at a very high correlation level. So while you may think you're not really baking any sort of embedded assumptions into your model, you are. That creates risk. What's a way to to reduce that risk? Take some of these feminist approaches, right? If you're unwilling to trade time for risk, that's a business decision. So I can speak in very, very business terms to say there's a trade-off. By doing it faster, you are increasing risk. If you want to reduce risk, you should do it slower because that gives you time to connect with a community, build trust, engage them as stakeholders in the production of whatever data-informed processes you're doing, and get their voice to expose any potential embedded assumptions, which turn into bias, which expose risk. So that's the sort of business language version of some of the stuff we talk about in the paper, academic paper you're referring to, 
which was led by a graduate student, Hermes Suresh, but was, you know, involved collaborators at activist communities. It was a very large project. And this was one little academic paper that came out of it. But like, that's the corporate version of the story uh, versus the academic version, which people are welcome to check out. And I think it, it can be concretized into very real capitalist costs. And I think that narrative kind of loses some pieces of it. Yeah. And so it's about that engagement with the, with the, the subjects of the data and getting you having them as stakeholders in the process. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And I think that right now we're at a time where a lot of, you know, C-suite executives look at machine learning and AI as sort of like a, a solution to some problems. And there's a ton of hype and a lot of marketing to help them think that and push them towards thinking that. And there's less discussion of the risks that it creates because nobody selling those services or approaches wants to do that. Data in, in sort of AI hype machine is seen as sort of a shiny ball to play with, with very little consideration about what's behind that. How is it produced? Who owns it? What are the embedded assumptions? What's left out? These are all things that computers don't help you consider. The computers are helpful to say, like, here's a pattern I see. Here's a prediction I can make. Those aren't the hard things anymore. You can pull something off the shelf to do that in the sort of advanced computational data analysis pipeline. You know, The hard things are the questions that you ask yourself about it. And those are things that humans are better at. And I think we need to do a better job helping people learn to ask those questions. And I think that's what comes out of a lot of the feminist work the data feminism work is helping people know to ask questions, how to ask them and how to propose alternative solutions to them. Because if we don't ask those questions, we see a reproduction of historical imbalances, right? And there's fantastic books written about this already that are years old. We know that using data processes the way they are now in sort of the forms they've been developed in these settings creates and reinforces historical imbalances of power and affects marginalized people more than other groups. And I think we all should care about that. I'm not like some crazy activist for saying that. We all should care about that. That matters for business as much as, much as it does for society and for individuals. So that's one piece that I think getting better at asking those questions that Excel, Tableau, R, Python, they don't help you ask those questions. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. That's That's really illuminating um, and insightful to hear and yeah it's all about well, from my understanding it's all about having that those critical thinking skills and thinking from the sidelines and asking questions it's all about that that, that isn't it yes for sure if you want to have a human in the loop in your machine learning approach like why are they there <laughs> what are they doing they shouldn't be there just to like highlight you know if you're doing image training to like draw a box around a dog in an image right like that's not that's not the utility of humans. We are good at asking those questions when we're engaged. And I think that that is a major piece of where we're going in sort of the computational capital B big data that, again, like academics have been questioning for a long time. And now in industry, we're seeing the impacts of not asking those questions. Anyone using these approaches is looking around and seeing the impacts of businesses that fail to ask these questions and suffer consequences, either with business loss, regulatory harm, or fines and products that don't work well, or work well for one specific group of people, and have negative impacts on another. Yeah, and I think it's really about leveraging the benefits and strengths 
of both the technology and, and the data that you pump into that technology and the humans that surround it. And I guess having that ability to harness both in the pursuit of good things is really the gold mine, it feels like. <laughs> We can hope. We can hope that we're helping people figure out ways to do that better. Um, that is the goal of certainly much of my work in these settings, and and I think a lot of other people as well, which is very exciting. Um, so hopefully, we can introduce these these approaches to a larger set of people. Yeah, exactly. Rahul, thank you so much. This has been a really special conversation for me. I really appreciate you coming and chatting to me and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with my audience base. Where can people find you and connect with you if they want to know more? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so you can um, check out our data culture group online. But um, if you want to look at some of the activities we have for introducing these, check out databasic.io, which is a set of activities I built with Catherine Magnesio that, and the data culture project is on there. If you want to try out some of these approaches with people in your peer group, there are facilitated activities there that are really fun that can get you started with how to work on those things that computers don't help with, and also build data literacy. If you want to check out some of the examples of that I'm talking about and the work that I'm doing, check out the data culture group at Northeastern. You can find me there, and I'm sure we'll be able to share the links as well. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you so much, Rahul. Lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having mm -hmm. me. It was a pleasure to chat this through. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Stories with Isabel Becker. If you enjoyed it, please follow the podcast, rate it, give it a review, and share it with your friends, colleagues, your students, teachers, anyone who's curious about playing with data and stories.